financial prosperity and an easy life and health and favor are not the blessing of God. Likewise, poverty, persecution, and struggle is not the curse. A lot of times we get these things mixed up. Now, sure, God can bless us in those ways and we can attribute our thanks to him for those things. But those things in and of themselves do not sum up the blessing of God. A lot of times people look at that word blessing and they attach that word directly to an easy life. A lot of times people look at that word curse or something bad happening in my life and they think all these bad things are something that's a result of either my own failing, result of maybe God not liking me very much, me not having enough faith, etc., etc., etc. These things create a works-based mentality. Because when you live with this type of mentality, you're always chasing after a formula or a way to get something from God and not trying to necessarily understand how to love God more. You're trying to love what God can get you more. And this type of teaching has infiltrated the church and it has caused our focus to get off of God and to get on to things. And we look at God in this light as the proverbial Santa Claus. And it causes a lot of destruction. When I was in Africa a couple of weeks ago, I was sitting down with Pastor Emmanuel, who is the pastor that we're connecting with and praying with and believing God to plant 4,500 churches over in the East Coastal region of Malindi there in Kenya. And when I sat down with Pastor Emmanuel, I said, bro, what is like the greatest threat to the church in Kenya? Like what is the enemy really using to try to cause the most damage. And you want to know what he told me? He said, the word of faith, prosperity, gospel message. He said, that is the biggest threat to what God is doing in Kenya. He said, because it's getting people's eyes on things instead of on Jesus Christ. And the same thing has happened in America, and now it's being exported over the world, and we see these things. And so it's easy for us to look at material wealth, blessing, favor, and say when we read that word blessing in scripture to attach all of those things to it. And that's all we think that it's about. And then we look at struggles and we think the opposite of that. And we just want to alleviate ourselves from struggle. And as we're going through the book of 1 Peter, verse by verse, there's a theme in this book. And the theme is really talking about suffering well for Christ. That's this idea that, man, I'll tell you, I'm just going to be honest with you, I don't like it. <laughs> I don't like the, the idea of suffering well because it's something that's difficult for me because I struggle because I like to be comfortable. If it's too hot in here, could somebody adjust the, the air, right? If I'm uncomfortable in a chair, I'll go find another. I'm going to readjust. I'm always looking for more comfort. I'm always looking for a better way to be more comfortable. And that's just the way that we have grown to seek after those things uh, as Americans. And the same can be true of the challenges and difficulties that we face in life as we look in the scripture. And some people use the scripture as some sort of remedy to try to get them what they want so they don't have to deal with difficulty. But here's the truth. The truth is that we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world. And although Christ makes us new inwardly and positionally right now, if you are in Christ, you are in right standing with God through faith in Christ, Scripture is very clear. Even Jesus himself is very clear that there will be challenges. There will be suffering. Jesus promised that. So it should come as no surprise to the Christian when there's difficulty or when we struggle. But 
for the Christian, the struggle is different. The struggle is real. It's different than those who don't have Christ's struggle. Let's look at a few scriptures real quick. Over in John chapter 15, and um, if you want to race me there, uh, you can, but I'm not going to wait on you. All right? John 15 and verse 20. Gotcha. All right. Remember, <laughs> remember the word that I said to you. This is Jesus speaking here, okay? Remember the word I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Who's he speaking to here? His disciples, people who are committed, devoted followers of Jesus. He said, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. Over in Romans chapter 8. Go over there real quick. Romans chapter 8. I thought we were in 1 Peter. We are. Chill out. It's okay. Romans 8 and verse 17. The Apostle Paul, he says, he says this. And if children were heirs, were heirs of God. Woo, boy, I like that. And were fellow heirs with Christ. Amen, somebody. Prov provided we suffer with him. Oh. In order that we also may be glorified with him. I, I didn't hear these types of sermons growing up. I really didn't. Over in Philippians chapter 1, verse 23. My Bible just automatically turned there. That was amazing. Verse 23, Philippians 1, 23. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Philippi. He said this. He said, he's writing to the church in Philippi. He says, I'm hard-pressed between the two because my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. I find this scripture interesting in light of suffering because the Apostle Paul is saying, I would rather... Be in heaven with Jesus right now. I would rather depart from this life. And he's saying, it's actually something I would rather do, but because it's better for me to stay on this earth and actually continue to proclaim the gospel, continue to be in this office of an apostle as long as God would have me be in this office of an apostle, to be able to help give direction to the church, clarity to the church, correction to the church, to be able to help provide leadership, all those things that were necessary in his office in that day. He said, it's better for your sake that I keep proclaiming Christ in the earth and doing this role that Christ has given me until Christ says, it's time for you to move on and be with me forever but he said my heart my desire i don't want to mess with you i want to be with jesus <laughs> he said but it's far better for you and so he says i'm torn between these two concepts and so as we look at the struggle of the apostle paul as we see this very idea play out in front of us of this suffering that christ was talking about because living in the noise is sharing in the sufferings of christ we have to understand this. We think sometimes the answer is eliminating the noise because there's a lot of noise happening in our world and in our lives, right? And when some of that noise can be reduced and eliminated, praise God, because, man, it's noisy in the world. I don't know about you, but when you turn on the TV or when you scroll through social media or when you scroll through the news or you, if you still unfold the newspaper, if you're still one of those folks that does that, you're reading about things that are so noisy. All of these things that can bring you a lot of fear if you're not careful. A lot of things that can bring you a lot of anxiety. Things that can bring you a lot of anger. There's a lot of emotional reaction to all the noise that's happening. Because a lot of this noise is anti-Christ. 
a lot of the noise is very anti-scripture. It's very anti the way that you and I as Christians are trying to live our lives for the glory of God. And so all this noise is happening, and we just want it to go away, right? I want the noise to stop. It's annoying. It's not right. It's, it's aggravating. It's angering. All of these things, it's depressing. All this noise that's in front of us. And so we can think, oh man, if we could just get rid of all this noise, life would be better. And yes, it would, but Jesus told us that there would always be this noise as long as you're living in this fallen world. Jesus said, you're always going to have the poor with you. You're always going to have this, this, this pressure, these struggles, these things. He said, and actually, it's going to be because of me. He said, the world is not going to like you very much. Those who are against me are not going to like you very much. And Jesus is saying, I'm the reason that they're not going to like you very much. And so the goal is not to gain favor in the world so everyone likes me and thinks everything I am doing is great. The goal is to actually keep my eyes on Jesus in the middle of the storm. Jesus even showed this in the, the way that he was in the boat asleep while his disciples were in the boat in the Sea of Galilee and a storm came that freaked them out. And these are professional fishermen. And if you have professional fishermen getting freaked out about a storm, that's a bad storm. I've been on the Sea of Galilee, not that big. <laughs> and I'm like, what kind of storm could happen on the Sea of Galilee? And, and I'll tell you, there must have been some kind of crazy storm come up. Because I couldn't imagine on that body of water where I could see from one side clear to the other where the land was. I'm going, wow, what, what kind of storm happened? It must have been something really scary. And then they were worried. They thought they were going to die. Jesus is asleep. And they wake him up. And Jesus says, you of little faith, what are you doing? Like, don't you know who's in the boat with you? And that's the point. Don't you know who's with you? Psalm 23. We use this psalm as a comforting psalm, right? And one of the, one of the pieces of that psalm that, that, that really sticks out to me is the part where it talks about, even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shouldn't be afraid. I shouldn't fear any evil. Why? Why? Because you're with me, right? And I know that you are leading me to green pastures and beside still waters. I know you're restoring my soul. But I also know that even when I walk through these difficult seasons, that you are still with me. And so when we are considering what the Apostle Paul is talking about, he's saying it's better for me to go away. But, but I guess for your benefit, it's better for me to stay here. But I really want to be with Jesus forever. And so living in this world, living in a fallen world, is sharing in the sufferings with Christ. And so every one of us, we, we often look at sharing in the sufferings of Christ as being just persecuted for our faith. And in America, in our free culture, we experience momentary persecution for our faith in Christ, but not near to the degree like what we see in other countries that don't live in a free society. And so we're like, we think maybe those people are somehow like better than us because maybe they're suffering, they're actually having to like make a decision about giving their lives for Christ and all that stuff. And, and listen, it's all suffering. Every bit of it, just living on this planet because Paul said it's better for me to not live here on this earth. I actually want to be with him forever. That's my hope, my desire, but it's still better for your benefit that I stay here. So do you see that idea, that concept that all of us, man, we all wrestle with that idea. So there is suffering, whether you're being directly persecuted or not, because you're living in a fallen world with fallen values that are against Christ. And we're always asking God to change things around us to alleviate our suffering. That seems to be a constant prayer. I pray that prayer, man, in various ways. And, and you pray that prayer in various ways. 
But God doesn't always change the things around us. But what he does do is he promises to change us in the midst of our suffering. He does promise to change us. It's not always fair, right? That's what we like to say. It's not fair. Or what I'm saying is is that what I have deemed as normal, a, a normal experience for someone to have, I don't feel like I'm having that experience. And I feel gypped. I feel, I feel like I've somehow didn't, didn't, I got the short end of the stick. I didn't get quite the full experience that other people are getting because I, I have to deal with this challenge, this challenge, or this issue, or why is this happening to me? And all of these questions that we have. Jesus said, yeah, it's because you're living in this fallen world. And I know that these things are going to happen. That's why Paul's like, man, I just want to check out. But there's something for me to do here. And so in the midst of the suffering, I have to realize that God is changing me. He doesn't always change my circumstance, but he is always promising to change me. An easy, comfortable life does not bring out the best in Christianity. Oh, hello, somebody. So the thing that often we're pursuing does not bring out the best in Christianity. Because then where's the opportunity to display our faith and our trust in God? And our, and, and, and our declaration that we actually get to live out trusting that he truly is sufficient and he's enough. What better opportunity do we have than the challenges that we face to go, God, whether this thing works out the way I hope or not, Lord, you're still good in the middle of all of it. I don't get to do that when everything's going my way. <laughs> so you see, God is actually glorified in my weakness. You remember the story in Mark chapter 4 where Jesus healed the man who had the withered hand? There's a little bit of, a, of history to that where there's a belief that perhaps this man was a stonemason and he injured this hand and now he has a hand that's no longer useful to him. And so this hand is withered and it's been injured. And, and in the middle of all of that, Jesus is preaching and the Pharisees knew that there was a guy there who had this disability. And so they wanted to see if Jesus would heal on the Sabbath so they could like accuse him of working on the Sabbath and disprove his legitimacy as a teacher sent from God. And so they're always looking for a way to do that, right? You see that all throughout the scripture. They're looking for a way to delegitimatize Jesus. And so Jesus is preaching and then this man with the withered hand is there and Jesus knew that this was a setup. He knew what was going on. Scripture says he knew. And in the middle of this, he stops, he calls the man out in the middle of the service, and he says, hey, you, back there, stand up. And he asks the man, he says, stretch out your hand. Oh, boy, he has two options. He has two options, stretch out your hand. Either he can stretch out the hand that looks like everybody else's, that has a normal, typical functioning hand, or he can reveal his weakness, his insecurity, his disability, his lack, his deformity, whatever you want to call it or name it. Are you going to expose that to Jesus? And so he stretches out that withered hand. And as he does, the power of God is manifested because Jesus is not interested in you showing him your strength because his power is made manifest through your weakness. And so it is in our weakness that Christ's power is manifested. So it's not the easy, comfortable, everything going my way life that shows the best in Christianity it, because it causes us to be complacent, man. And we find comfort and ease of life instead of trusting in God, who's the source in the middle of the storm. And so over in 1 Peter, with all of that kind of in our heart and that understanding, let's read just a little bit of 1 Peter here. 
in chapter 3 and verse 8. He says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for to you, for, for this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now, is there, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous to do what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Underline that, please. <laughs> Having a good conscience, you can underline that too, so that when you are slandered, when you are slandered, not if, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So if I do evil, I'm still going to suffer. <laughs> if I do it my way, if I slander, if I do all these different things he says to avoid and to stay away from. And he's talking about living in a culture that is very anti-Christ. He's talking about living in a culture where there's a lot of pressure, socially, culturally. He's talking about there's a lot of noise in this culture. How are you going to live in the middle of that? He says, this is how you should live in the middle of all of that. He said, if you do live to honor Christ, he said, you're going to be blessed. What is the blessing? Is the blessing that the noise goes all the way? No, the blessing is that a wretch like me, a sinner, has been forgiven, redeemed, put in right standing with God, and I can forever be with him in eternity, and I will suffer no more because I will be with him, and I will live with him for all eternity. What greater blessing is that? You see, we get so short-sighted with this life. We think it's all about this experience here. I want to use this experience of living here on this earth to be able to live my life in a way that points people to Jesus Christ. Because he is the hope for not only now. Yes, he, he gives me hope now in this life, but he gives me hope for eternity, man. There's nothing else I could do to try to give myself hope for eternity. It's in Christ and in Christ alone. Amen? So living for the glory of God should be unconditional because he is our reason i'm saying god i'm living for you without any restriction i'm living for your glory lord without any other hesitancies in my life any other pursuits in my life seeking first the kingdom of god and his righteousness and knowing god's going to take care of all of the rest of it he's going to take care of the rest and so whatever the rest is because man you can sit down with a bunch of different people and hear their stories and everybody's got a story everybody's got ups and downs everybody's got some 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 peaks and valleys man everybody has that type of a story and so it's not always about just riding high on the peak it's about saying no he's with me even in the midst of the storm even in the midst of the challenges he's still in the boat he's with me he's never going to leave me or forsake me and even in those times of weakness even in those times of doubt through my weakness, through my inability, his power can be manifested. Amen, church? 
1 Peter chapter 3, let's keep reading, verse 18. He says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but being made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saved you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. I wanted to take a minute out on this particular passage because Peter makes a claim uh, one, uh, in, in one of his writings where he says that Paul is difficult to understand. I want to slap Peter and say, no, you are difficult to understand. Because he, he's talking about suffering for Christ's sake. And in the middle of that, he starts talking about Noah. And in the middle of talking about Noah, he starts talking about that Jesus preached to these spirits in prison. What are you talking about? And there's a lot of argument about this text, which is why I wanted to stop here and talk about it for a minute, because I didn't want to just glaze over it and go, eh, and moving on, you know. This passage is never going to be fully agreed upon or fully understood, so I'm going to humbly submit this to you. In the context, remember, we have to look at the context. The context is key, because Peter isn't just having a moment where he's just diverting to talk about a different subject matter. He's still in the same thread, in the same thought of this idea of suffering for Christ's sake and living in the middle of suffering and glorifying God through it and trusting Christ's, Christ's sufficiency. So in the context, we see that Peter is staying on topic with suffering and being persecuted because he's speaking to people who are being put on trial for their faith in Christ. So Jesus speaking to spirits in prison obviously has something to do with the people of Noah's day. Now, if you've done some study on Noah, there's this weird group of people called the Nephilim and there's debate and argument about what that even means and who those people really are. Are they some sort of hybrid angel-human thing? Or is it, is it some sort of group of people that was just super wicked? What, what was the Nephilim? What was this group of people? Are those even the people that is being mentioned here? Because he's talking about Noah's day and the people who rejected God. Is he preaching to those people? What's the prison? What is that? Is that this idea of Sheol? I don't know. And I'm not going to stand up here and say, this is what it is. Um, because I would be one of many people arguing with different uh, uh, ideas and, and subjects. So, anytime I come across something in Scripture where I don't fully understand it, I, and, and it's not super, super clear, what I try to do is I try to stay focused on the main idea. All right? And it's not to say that this doesn't matter. It's not fun to, to talk about or discuss or to research or to have a, have a study on. You certainly can do that. There's no danger in that as long as you don't let it cause division. Because when you cause division over silly things, like what does that really mean with those people? Like that's not the point. The point isn't Jesus speaking to these people. The point is the fact that Christ suffered and died and that he provided a way where there was no way. So stay focused on the main idea, but still research, still talk about those things. So I just want to give that little, that's a little side mini-sermon, it's for free. So, um, but here's the, here's the point, here's the point, is that he's, he's using the story of Noah as allegory to make a point and to use it as an illustration because he's assuming that his audience that he wrote to knows the story of Noah. 
And so in that assumption, he's using this as an illustration to talk about how Jesus is the ark. Jesus is the way of escape from death. Because everyone else, death was certainty. There was only one place for salvation. And that salvation is in Christ alone. And Christ is the ark. And, they, uh, and then he uses water as God's tool for both judgment and vindication from those who were persecuting Noah and his family and those who were uh, obeying God were saved, the eight people he references. The water of the flood, uh, he likens that to baptism, that acts as this public tool of separation and allegiance to say, I am now in faith in God. I have my faith in God, and I'm trusting in him. Those who rejected God's promises and persecuted Noah's family died in the water. But those who received the word of God and had faith were saved from the water by obedience to build and to get into the ark. So in one way, they're separated because one is now saved because of this ark in the waters, and the other is, experiences judgment. And so he's liking this to that. And he talks about baptism is like this. Now, one only becomes a Christian by faith alone in Christ, not by works. Amen, church? And so Peter isn't suggesting here that it's just simply by this act of water baptism alone. He's saying, no, it is this public and cultural being set apart to be holy, to live with a clear conscience. And he's saying, this is your appeal to God by faith. This isn't a private thing. So this is a public thing. This is your appeal to God by faith. And he says, and he has gone into heaven. He's at the right hand with God, with angels and authorities and powers, all having been subjected to him. And so he's still talking about the supremacy of Christ through all of this. And he's helping us to understand that, listen, we are to be a holy people. Remember, when Pastor Evan taught the very first message, the very uh, first message in this series, the whole concept was around being holy, being separate, being set apart. And he's saying, listen, Jesus is the one who does this. It's like in the flood days of Noah, there's a separation between those who are of Christ, those who are in Christ, and those who are not those who have certain death man they're eternally separated from god and he's talking about the authority of christ to do that even in the middle of all of this so whoever's persecuting you whatever struggles you're facing whatever difficulty you're going through he said listen if they don't repent if they don't see christ as the hope he's like this same judgment is going to come on them and so he's helping them to understand christ's christ's supremacy and his authority through all of this so I hope that helps a little bit. 1 Peter chapter 4, let's read these first 11 verses. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves in the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, they live in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. And they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. That though judged in the flesh, the way people are, they might live in the same way God does. So this is still referencing kind of that that last passage that we read there verse in verse uh, chapter 3 verse 18 through 22 the end of all things is at hand therefore be self-controlled sober-minded for the sake of your prayers and above all keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins show hospitality to one another without grumbling as each other has received a gift 
Use it to serve one another as stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. And here's the idea that Peter is wanting to communicate here to the church. And I believe that the Holy Spirit is still communicating through these words to us today. That living holy is to live free from sin. And to continue to serve in the midst of suffering for the glory of Jesus Christ. A lot of people want to give up hope. A lot of people want to just throw in the towel and go, is it even worth it? Some people want to be selfish and just think, well, I've got my family and all my stuff situated and figured out. And I just want to keep to myself. And I just want to kind of keep over here. He's saying, no, keep serving. You all have gifts. He's saying, serve in the middle of this. I know it's hard. I know it's difficult. But yes, be separate. Be holy. But don't forget to love and serve those people who don't yet know Jesus. He's wanting to elevate that priority of not compromising, still living holy, still living with understanding, still living with patience, still living full of grace because what you say and how you say it matters. He said, even if when they want you to participate in the stuff that they're doing, you say no, and because you said no, you get persecuted because of it. They malign you, they make fun of you, they make your life more difficult. He said, I, I know that it's difficult when you're living your life differently in the middle of when everyone else is doing things a certain way and when the majority is going a certain way and you make the decision to not go that way, you kind of stand out, right? It's like everybody, it's blue t-shirt day and you wear a red t-shirt, right? You stand out. Everybody else is wearing a blue t-shirt, you're wearing a red t-shirt. That's how it is being a Christian and you will be persecuted and you will suffer because you're doing something different than what the majority is doing. Don't be surprised by this. That's what Peter is saying. Don't be surprised when these things happen as if some strange thing is happening to you. He's saying, of course you're called to do this. Of course you're not just called to just blend in. But you're not called to make a bunch of trouble intentionally either. Just because you're different. And that's the key, is to still be gentle, still be patient, still be loving. There's this tension that the Christian is called to live in. And it's difficult, because it's easier to just go, no, I'm going to be just a jerk to everybody who doesn't think like me, and tell them how stupid and wrong they are. That's the easier thing to do. The more difficult thing to do is to walk with people who don't yet know God, who are living as people who don't know God. So don't be surprised by that either. Don't be surprised when people who don't know Jesus act like people who don't, don't know Jesus. <laughs> I can't believe you said that. I can. You don't know Jesus. <laughs> you know? I can't believe you participate in those things and do those types of activities. Oh, my goodness. Why are you surprised? That's how people who don't know Jesus act and behave. That's why when Christians, people who do know Jesus, act that way, it should be more shocking. Oh, I thought you knew Jesus. And when scripture talks about judging, it actually says we are supposed to judge and hold one another in the body of Christ accountable when we're not acting in the way that is conducive to our faith. Because we are supposed to hold each other accountable. The person who doesn't know God, nope. Just keep loving them and telling them about Jesus. Plant water. Let God work on their heart. Pray for them. Keep serving them. Keep loving them. Keep showing up. Keep your side of the drawbridge down as much as possible and as healthy as it is for you to be able to do that. And live in that tension. That's your call. And yet it may cause you to suffer but Christ suffered for you so that you could cross that bridge as well. Amen? And so I, I, that's, if I suffer for that, okay. 
It's part of my call. It's sharing in the sufferings with Christ. If I'm ostracized because of it, I'm ostracized because of it. But I'm still going to keep my side of the drawbridge down. I'm still going to keep loving. I'm never at any point going to go, no, I'm done with you because Jesus never said he was done with me. I'm going to keep loving people in the middle of that. So we are supposed to live holy. We are supposed to live free from sin. We're not supposed to have compromise. But at the same time, man, it's this idea of serving in the middle of my suffering. Let's finish this chapter. Verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice. Ooh, that's not easy, right? Rejoice insofar. That's a fun word. As you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you're blessed. Because the spirit of glory and God rests upon you. He didn't say that you're going to be blessed with all these things. No, he's saying, listen, this is the blessing in the middle of this. Is that you're glorifying God through this. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us... What will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. Oh. And so, God is good even in the middle of suffering. That's hard for us to wrap our minds around because when we suffer, we start to question God's goodness. It's natural. Like, I'm not saying that to beat you up. I, I, I do that. You do that. We do that. Where we question God's goodness when we suffer, when things are hard, when things are difficult. But here's the big idea for today. The goodness of God is not defined by your current circumstances, but rather is defined by your eternal position in Christ. Oh, I'm going to say that again because, man, that, that sounds incredibly potent, powerful, and good, and you need to hear this. Listen today. Listen to the word. Hear this. The goodness of God is not defined by your current circumstances, but rather it's defined by your eternal position in Christ. When we say God is good all of the time, and all the time God is good, because that's a thing Christians say. When we say that, when we say God is good, what we're saying is all the time. That means when things are going my way and when things are not. Because God's goodness is not defined on my feelings, my experiences, my emotions. God's goodness is not defined by how much money is in my bank account. God's goodness is not defined by how healthy or how sick I feel, how challenged or unchallenged I feel, how easy or difficult things may be for me. God's goodness is not defined by those things. God's goodness is defined by the fact that he has taken someone who was on a pathway to eternal destruction and has now placed us in a position of eternal love in Christ 
forgiveness, reconciliation, restoration. That is the goodness of God. There is nothing greater than my eternity being forever sealed in the eyes of God because of what Jesus Christ has done. And all I have to do is I have to put my faith, my trust in him that he is sufficient, that he is enough, that there's no other way to the Father except by Jesus, that there's no other way to salvation except by Jesus, that he is the way, the truth, and the life, and nobody comes to the Father except through Jesus. When I believe that he is enough, I have a peace that passes my understanding. What that means is that that peace I'm experiencing is not because my circumstances are necessarily going the way I want them to go, not necessarily because everything in life is working out the way I'd hoped or wanted, but because I am eternally positioned in the eyes of God as a son or as a daughter, and I have been brought, welcomed into, adopted into, grafted into the family of God. Oh, that's why I have a peace in the middle of the storm. That's why if Jesus is asleep in the boat, I can rest too, knowing that he is sufficient and that nothing is too big for my God. And I praise God when I get alleviated from pain. Don't, don't misunderstand the message. When I experience a miracle, because I believe God still does miracles. I believe God still does healing. I still believe God does intervene in situations that are really stressful and he causes those moments of alleviation but our entire life is not an alleviation of those things we still have difficulty we have we still have issues and struggle but man when when those things happen i i still give glory to god but i'm not just chasing that alleviation momentarily and temporarily because every healing that i've experienced from the hand of god i've, I've gotten sick again you know all the people in the bible that jesus healed they're all dead <laughs> Every single person Jesus healed is dead. Think about that for a minute. <laughs> Even the dead people that he raised are dead. <laughs> Which shows what's the purpose of the miracles. Was it just to alleviate their current suffering and give them just a few more good years to make some good memories? No, he had a plan for them, and it also shows the power of God, that, and it shows who he is. You see, so he still does those things. I believe God is still a miracle-working God. But at the same time, the greatest miracle of all is that he's taken someone who was separated eternally and now made him a son or a daughter. He's brought us back in right standing. That's the greatest miracle that has happened or ever will happen. Amen? And so no healing of sickness, no bill getting paid, no relationship on earth being restored is greater than this message of salvation and the miracle of salvation. It's the greatest thing you'll ever experience. And so that should temper my focus and my heart towards him, amen? I want to read you one more scripture and then we're going to receive communion together. Romans 8 and 18 says, this is Paul speaking, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Oh, come on, somebody. Come on, somebody. I, man, he, he says, I, I would, I, I want you guys to get that the sufferings that we're dealing with right now, it's not even worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed in us. Oh, take that scripture, own that scripture if you're going through something hard right now. If you're going through something difficult right now, take that. If you've been having some mental challenges, some emotional battles, if you've been going through a valley feeling sorry for yourself and struggling with the love of God and the purpose of God and the care of God, take that scripture 
as the Apostle Paul, he's, he's writing this from a place of, of abuse and prison and writing this from a place of, of difficulty and challenge. And he's saying, man, I consider all the beatings I've taken, all of the sickness that I've dealt with, all of the shipwrecks, all of the stuff, it's nothing compared to the glory that's going to be revealed. Hmm. And let the peace of God wash over you. Let the love of God restore your hope again to keep suffering well for Christ. To, not, to, to bring yourself back to acknowledging the goodness of God and who he is and that he is enough. So I want you to take those communion elements. When you came in this morning, you should have been handed one of these. This juice reminds us of the blood of Jesus that was spilled for us because Scripture says in the book of Leviticus that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission for sin. And so this idea of Jesus spilling his blood that was never touched by sin, that, that life, that blood that represents that life, that life that was given for you and for me. He took our place. And when we drink that, we remember that he lived a sinless life, that he died in our place, and that his blood has truly made us free. The Apostle Paul says that we have been redeemed, purchased, bought back by the blood. We weren't bought back with silver or gold. That wasn't how he redeemed us or purchased us, but with his life, with his blood. When we take this this small little piece of bread, we think about his body, we think about the suffering that he endured, we think about the weight of our sin that caused him to suffer in that way. And it reminds our hearts and points our hearts to Jesus. And so when we receive communion, this is, for some, this is something that is reserved for people who have placed their faith and trust in Christ. And if you're here today and you have not placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ as your only hope, then I don't want you to feel embarrassed to not receive this, but understand this is for those of us who understand the fact that he has given his life for us. And if you want to be a part of that family, all it takes is for you to have faith, to trust and believe that he is enough. If you will believe in your heart, if you will confess with your mouth, if you will repent, turn from your sin, if you will turn your heart and your faith towards Christ and say, yes, Jesus, you are the Savior. You are the hope. And you see that, and God's opening your eyes. And then you start this journey, man, of walking in a relationship with God. Because Jesus has made a way, he's blessed you. So now you can walk in that real blessing. You can do that. You can be a part of that. The communion doesn't do that for you. This is just a symbol. It just reminds us. The communion elements, yes, the, the, what they represent is precious. But at the end of the day, these, these elements don't save us. So don't put your faith in this juice and in this bread. Put your faith in the one that it represents, the one that it points our hearts to. Amen, church? And so if you don't know Christ and you want to put your faith and trust in Christ, whether you're watching online, whether you're here in the room, whether you're out in the lobby, we have our prayer team. At the end of this service, the prayer team's going to be up here at the front. And we want to pray with you because not only do we want to just acknowledge and realize and recognize that you have placed your faith in Christ, but we want to help you on this journey. We have men and women who are mentors that are on a list that have been trained to be able to walk with you through your journey and that we want to pair you with somebody and they could reach out to you and say, hey, I heard you place your faith in Christ. I want to help you take that next step in your journey with Jesus. And so that's why we want to pray with you and be able to connect with you. So please, would you take that step of faith at the end of the service? And so before we dismiss, 
why don't we get those communion elements out let's give thanks for the bread thanks for the juice let's receive the lord's supper together father we thank you for this bread we thank you for what it represents may our hearts be stirred to trust in your goodness even in the middle of the storm in jesus name amen would you take the bread And Jesus, we thank you for your blood that was spilled for our behalf so that we could be free, so we could be forgiven, so we could be made new. And we thank you for what you've done for us and what you are doing for us. And may it remind us to continue to trust in your goodness because you will never stop being enough. You will never stop being good. No matter what we may be experiencing, you are our hope. And this may stir our heart today and our affections may be on you pointed towards you and our commitment lord will be lived out to you in jesus name amen thank you lord